Welcome to Blind Spots, a podcast where we're helping you fill the gap between what you want to do with your money and what you actually do. We are professional investors, writers, and financial planners helping you navigate the complexities of finance to optimize what you can control and cut out the rest. Join your host, Nick Shermans and Aaron Varghese, as we discuss the questions and nuances surrounding everyday money management. Investment advisory services offered through Pure Portfolios, a registered investment advisor with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Nick Shermans and Aaron Varghese work for Pure Portfolios. Any opinions expressed by Nick and Aaron or any podcast guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pure Portfolios. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. It should not be construed as legal or tax advice and is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified attorney or tax professional. Clients of Pure Portfolios may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. This information is not an offer or solicitation to buy or sell securities. The information contained may have been compiled from third-party sources and is believed to be reliable. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Blindspot. Today, we are going to be discussing the process for how to choose an advisor. We talked to dozens of people who are searching for the right advisor that meets their needs, aligns with their goals, and has their best interest in mind. And it can be a difficult and taxing process. So we want to arm you with information so you can make the best decision for your personal situation. We are going to be talking all about how to identify the type of advisor that you want to work with, how to filter out the bad apples, and questions to ask when you are interviewing an advisor. So we'll close with a personal story and takeaways for how that situation was avoidable. But Nick, tell us a little bit about what you plan on doing when you go to hire an advisor. Yeah, so this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. You know, since I launched here in 2016, I've always said our biggest challenge is educating the public about the differences in advisors. The the public tends to think that all advisors are the same. Mm-hmm. That could not be further than the truth. And I I empathize with people. It's a it's a very difficult and confusing process. You don't really know who to believe. There's information spewing from everywhere. Your your brother-in-law's got an advisor they likes, your parents work with someone, you know, you read this online. It's just a flood of information. And people can say whatever they want. Advisors can say whatever they want. There's an old saying in our in our business that people will do anything and say anything to get the business. So I'm I'm gonna share the journey that I would take when I hire a financial advisor. I've I've been doing this for almost 20 years. At the end of my time, which I'm 40, I, I still plan on working for a, a long time. But when I'm done, I'm done looking at markets, checking my phone in the middle of the night to see what futures are doing. I'm done talking about financial markets. I'm going to hire a professional. And this is the process that I'm going to go through. Okay, so step one, where do they work? That's our, our screen number one. Right, so, so think of this as a funnel, right? It's wide at the top. As we go through these screens, it's going to get a little more narrow and focused, okay? So the number one thing that I'm going to filter out is where my advisor works. So that's the first thing someone should should start to identify or ask, where does this financial advisor work? And I can tell you, there's a few types of financial institutions that I would never do business in, with, in or with. And trust me, I've worked on both sides. I've worked for publicly traded companies, Wall Street firms. I've been on both sides. So so I can, this is near and dear to my heart. I would never work with a Wall Street firm. I would never work with a non-fiduciary firm. I would never work with a broker dealer. And a broker dealer is 
basically an umbrella where an advisor has to be a fiduciary sometimes, but not all the time. It can be very confusing. I would never work with an insurance company advisor. I would never work with anyone trying to sell me anything. I would never work with a publicly traded investment company. So, so directly with a publicly traded firm. So even though this is our top of the filter per se, I, I want to get really granular here and ask you why you would not work with those companies. Cause there's good and bad apples everywhere. So why specifically those ones that you listed off? And let me qualify this. So I'm not saying the people that work at these types of firms are bad. I'm saying the incentive system that's bestowed upon good people directly works against clients. And it's, and it's not a secret. It's all out in the open if you know where to look. So I'm going to tell you where to look. The best place to look is goodjobsfirst.org. And Aaron will include the link in the description, in the show notes, whatever it's called. Okay. Once you get to that website, you can actually filter by industry. So put, put financial services in the search box and it'll show you the most find financial institutions out there. You can even search by company. So if, if you've engaged an advisor that works at, I'm not even sure if I could throw out a name that works out XYZ firm, put XYZ firm in the search box and you can see all of their fines from the last 22 years. And what you'll probably see is the types of fines are different, but they're consistent from year to year to year. So these companies just invent new ways to rip people off. Like there's, there's kind of this notion, I mean, pure is a small company in the grand scheme of things, but we're an independent company. And there's this belief amongst advisor seeking consumers that working with a small company is risky. And look, there, there's no regulation that will prevent a greedy person or a bad acting person. Okay. But there's a pattern of behavior, a consistent pattern that you can trace back over decades and see just because you work with the biggest firm on wall street does not mean that you cannot get ripped off does not mean you can't be subject to a Ponzi scheme. Doesn't mean your advisor just can't lift up and steal your money. It happens every single day in this country. Okay. So, so understand what type of firm that you're working with, understand the fines and the, and the wrist slaps and the violations that have occurred under that roof at the very least know what you're getting into. But, but again, the incentive systems in these type of institutions that I outlined, you know, the wall street firms, the public firms incentivize this type of behavior. Advisors working at these institutions are incentivized to sell. In order to put food on the table, they have to sell. That promotes bad client outcomes. That promotes bad actors. That's all I'm saying. So in addition to goodjobsfirst.org, what other sites could one go to if you're searching out an advisor to find a little bit more about the company itself, not necessarily the person? So an underrated resource in this whole advisor search deal is Glassdoor. And if you're a job seeker, look for a job in the last decade, you probably know what Glassdoor is, but it allows for associates and former associates to give insight and feedback into the culture at that company and go search any name brand, wall street, big bank or firm, big banks, another one I would never work with. And you'll see associates and former associates just light them up. Like they it's, it's not a good culture. And I'm, and I'm using blanket comments. I'm sure there's a large bank out there that's better than, you know, the second largest bank or what have you. But in general, these are not places that people feel good working at. 
People are very honest on Glassdoor because it's anonymous. They can say whatever they want about whoever they want, about whatever they want. So you're getting honest feedback from people who have real experience working there. So if, if you think, or, or if you know, the workforce is beaten down and miserable working for this company that you're considering hiring to manage your finances, what do you think your, your service level is going to be like? I mean, do you think that's going to be a pleasant experience? I mean, maybe, maybe you get the, uh, the 10% slice of associates that are, that are super happy and thrilled to be working there. But chances are you're going to get a beaten down, disgruntled, mentally checked out person that's servicing your account. And nobody wants that. So, so the long and the short of it is, and I don't mean to rail, I don't mean to pick on any company. These aren't bad people again, but the bottom line comes down to incentives. Humans respond to incentives. We've seen that throughout history. Okay. If a company, if a public company has a legal obligation to maximize shareholder value and they have a legal, a legal obligation to do what's right for the client, if push comes to shove, who do you think wins? It's, it's not you. It's not the so client. So we've talked about who you would not work with. I'm going to flip it around and ask you who you would work with. I would find an independent company. I would find an advisor, an independent company that I can, that I can look in the eyes. I can understand their investment approach. I can get to know the partners and the founders and the people that work there. Like, like that's important to me. Some, some people might be comfortable working with a online type of company, like a personal capital or a betterment, that's, that's fine too. But you, you want an independent fiduciary and, and me personally, like I, I like transparency. So I, I can tell pretty much if a advisor is someone that I would work with just by looking at their website for, for 30 seconds. Okay. The type of people that I want to work with have their fees on their website. They are, they are creating content, meaning they're, they're sharing with the public what they think about planning or taxes or estate planning or financial markets or, or the economy. They're, they're an open book. I, I want someone with a CFP or a CFA that shows a commitment to their craft. It shows they have a growth mindset. It shows that they're disciplined. Yeah. Those are all great things to look for. So if you've got a list of things that you want your advisor to do or to know, or to talk about it's 2022. So having that on your website is. Is important. I can't tell you how many prospects that we come across that have no clue what they're paying. Mm -hmm. they, they have no clue what they're paying. Yeah. Think about your whole life. Like, would you ever walk and buy a new car and have no clue what you paid or go to the grocery store and have no clue what your final bill is? Yeah. No. I talked about that. I talked about this in my last financial planning video and it, it's almost like you want to shake people sometime. Like this is your hard earned money. You've worked your entire life to build this nest egg, your wealth that you're going to live off of for the rest of your life. Like you need to take charge of that. You need to take responsibility and understand exactly what goes into this whole process. Well, that's why we're going to help people do that. And I think where someone works, where an advisor works is a great first screen because it weeds out a lot of crap. Mm -hmm. That's your first screen. That's your big top of the filter. So now we're mm -hmm. drilling down a little bit. Screen number two, how do you filter out the bad apples? So. The, the SEC has a website, you can go to investor.gov and actually search the firm name. So the firm that you're considering or the advisor, and you'll get this report where it shows if they've had any issues with compliance, a, dis, a disciplinary action, meaning they, a client 
submitted a complaint. Maybe there was a lawsuit. So it shows all of that history and you can see their work history. You can see if they have any marks against their, their work over the life of their career. It's a really easy search. And, you know, I don't want to say that everyone with a, with a dis disciplinary mark is a bad advisor, mm -hmm. but you'll start to notice patterns of behavior. Like if someone has a mark that happened in 1986 and it was settled and the, and the client was wrong or off their rocker, which, which does happen sometimes. That's one thing. If someone is getting a, a regulatory slap once every year, that's a pattern that I'm going to run the other way from. And to your point on the one disclosure several years ago, it's not out of the realm of appropriateness to ask the advisor about that. Like, Hey, tell me what happened in this situation because they're going to be very familiar with the situation because it's a big deal to go through getting a disclosure. So I think that that would be well appropriate to ask about that. That's, that's a good point, Aaron. And, and I'll share this story. I'm not going to name names, but, but, but this happened to us, this, I don't know, maybe in March, which, which I was absolutely floored. This has never happened to me in my career. So pure portfolios lost a client and, you know, that's just part of the business. We, we have a low turnover rate, meaning clients don't leave us often, but, but it does happen in this particular client I'd worked with for, for a while. And she let me know one day that she, she was leaving to a certain firm and, you know, she thanked me for the work, but she wanted a little more certainty. So, so this, this particular advisor that she was going to was selling her an annuity. You know, this is the time where the market was really volatile. You know, a lot of salespeople will use markets going down or markets acting crazy to sell the certainty of, of an annuity. So, so she, that apparently appealed to her, which was fine. But the way the transfer went down was odd to our entire team. So we decided to dig a little more. And it turns out the advisor that she was going to was being investigated by the SEC and was being investigated by a state for defrauding elderly clients. Big red flag. A major, major red flag. And this investigation was current. It was ongoing. It wasn't from 1986. I shared this information with our now former client. She, she really didn't respond. I can tell, I can tell it shook her though. The very next morning, the client calls me in a panic and says, I've made a mistake. Can you stop the transfer? And by then it was too late. So I, I followed up. I, I armed her with her recourse, things that she should be thinking about, action items to do. But at the end of the day, she made a hasty emotional decision and it probably didn't end well for her. And, and, and I really felt bad. Sometimes emotions can really just get the best of people. And unfortunately, it was just a situation that was out of our hands because you can transfer money out, close accounts without the consent of your advisor. You know, you don't need our permission to take your money and go. So unfortunately, we weren't able to get in front of it and ask questions and give the assistance that she needed. And look, no one likes to lose a client. I don't like to lose clients. But when we lose a client, let's say, and again, it doesn't happen all that often, or if we're going head to head with a, with a firm and we end up losing the business, we lose a prospect. Like, you know, if I'm pitching against the guy across the street and prospect decides that person's a better fit than peer, that can be fine. But I can tell you, it depends where the prospect or where the client goes. The client says, Hey, Nick, I'm going to go to Vanguard or I'm going to go to this RIA that uh, charges reasonable fees. You know, I like their investment approach. That's fine. 
I, I feel bad, but I can sleep at night. The client leaves or a prospect decides to go with a, with a salesperson or a high fee advisor that operates in the shadows. It's not being transparent and forthright. That really bothers me. And, and I lose sleep. And, and this was a case of the latter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Overall, just a really weird situation. And it's not like we had access to information that she wouldn't have. This was, it was like a public article written in a local newspaper about this, which is the most alarming. So if you just Googled this advisor's name, it was like front page news. Right. And that's a really good point. So what you should be doing. So once you screened out for the, for the firm that your advisor works at, and you determine that they're not a bad apple on investor.gov. The last part of this screen is, go is Google their name, check the Google review page for the advisor and their firm, check their LinkedIn page, check their social media. There's a trove of information out there. As, as Aaron just alluded to, I, I simply Googled this bad acting advisor's name and the story was front page on a major newspaper. Mm -hmm. So the information is there. You just need to be paying attention. Googling is great because you find out information in relation to their professional life, but your advisor is someone who should be trusted. It should be a good character fit. Your personality should mesh if you're looking for someone to work with long-term. And so you might find things on social media or things that they're posting or what have you that may not align with your own values. So that's something that could pop up in that search as well. So be aware. Okay, on to screen number three, the questions that you ask. You get into a meeting, you're finally face-to-face -face or on the phone with the advisor that you are interested in working with. What kind of questions should you ask? So assuming you've already screened for a fiduciary advisor, these are the questions that I would ask. Aaron will include these because they're, they're great. What are your fees? You should understand exactly what you're paying and what you're getting for that advice. Should be a simple and straightforward question. If they fail to disclose what you're paying, if they give you a wishy-washy answer, if they don't put it in writing, if they stall, these are all red flags. If it's not on their website, red flag. Next question, can I track my fees in real time? Do they appear on my statement? So it's one thing to get the fees in writing and have your advisor tell you what your fee is. You should be able to verify what you're actually paying. So up here, our fees show up in dollar, in itemized dollar amount in a client's portal. Our custodian shows the client fee every single month. And some months we don't take fees. So we take fees only four times a year at the end of every quarter. But it's all, but it's all right there. If a client wanted to see what fee they paid over the last 18 months, they could customize that and get that information. If they wanted to know what fee they paid for the life of their relationship at Pure, they could get that in less than 15 seconds. Shouldn't be a mystery. This is table stake stuff that we're talking about. This is a layup line. Understand what you're paying for advice. How about the all-in cost of investing? Sometimes that's not always as easy of a number to dig up, but talk to me a little bit about commissions, maybe expense ratios, things like that. Yeah, so, so the fee that your advisor quotes you, the management fee, is, is what you're paying to that advisor, okay? A common fee in the industry is 1%, okay? So if your advisor says the cost for my services is 1%, that goes to the advisor and their company. That may or may not be your all-in cost of investing. It's probably not, okay? There is a cost to own the assets, right? So if you're 
investing in a mutual fund, there's an internal cost and expense ratio. If you're buying an ETF, there's an internal expense ratio, although ETFs are much lower cost than a mutual fund. If your advisor is outsourcing the investment management, meaning giving it, giving your money to a third party to actually manage, there's an extra layer of funds there or fees there. I can't tell you how many times, I mean, my, my, my head almost exploded a month ago where someone told me their advisor outsourced the investment management to a company that I know what they charge and then kept telling me that they didn't charge a fee for that third party management. Yeah. Okay. Nothing is free people. Nothing is free. Like your advisor charges you a fee, whether it's transparent or not, I can't be the judge of that, but the fee is there publicly traded companies don't work for free. Advisors don't work for free. The more people that touch the money, the more that you're paying. Okay. So you want to understand who is touching the money. Okay. So you've got your advisor fee plus the cost of owning the assets, mutual funds, third party, exchange traded funds, hedge funds, yada, yada. The third part of that, which is not necessarily a fee, but it's a drag. If you have a non-retirement account, a taxable account, and you own mutual funds, or you own hedge funds, or you own exotic funds, a private equity fund, a structured note. If you target income, like a dividend strategy, or you own taxable bonds, that investment income could be taxable, and those funds could be passing along capital gains to you. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to sell. They just pass along capital gains to the end investor. And when you add all of those three things up, that's your overall cost of investing. Oh, and another thing to note on that is all of these questions you should verify in the ADV. That is a official document and get whatever your advisor is telling you verbally in writing because it's not official if they're just telling you. So Aaron, why don't you explain where someone could find an ADV and then I'll explain why you need to get it in writing. So the ADV, if you again, Google the company that you are looking to work with, their name should be one of the first links that typically pops up, or you can just put advisors firm name B into Google and it should pop up. Yeah. It, or you could go to the advisor website job. and they should have a link at the bottom of the page that has a link to the, to the ADV. There's a lot of different reporting websites where it, it will show up, but it is required to be on our website as well. So there's a few different parts to it. All are important, but make sure you check those out and see what's listed in there. Yeah. So, so just real quick. So the ADV, again, you want to use the ADV to verify what your advisor is telling you. And the ADV will have a written section on fees, potential conflicts of interest, who owns the firm, what kind of services that they provide, any other inner workings, compliance, regulatory insight, anything that you would want to know to make a hiring decision will be in the ADV. Okay. What you want to do is to, is to compare what your advisor is telling you with the ADV, because I can tell you advisors, again, will say anything to get the business. Some of the stuff that I hear other advisors say, prospects will tell me they'll promise rates of return. They'll understate their fee. They'll over promise their, I mean, it goes on and on. They'll, they'll say they don't have any conflicts of interest when, when they're getting kickbacks from a certain fund company to use their funds. So. Mm -hmm. Get it in writing, trust, but verify with another question that we thought would be important. Is after you talk about fees, you understand how much you will be paying, or you have a rough estimate of what you will likely be paying. Ask what services you will receive for that money. Ask for specifics. And of course, a, a good example is 
a lot of firms charge an assets under management fee, right? So they'll, the client will pay the advisor a 1% fee. Six months in, they'll collect a financial planning fee of a couple thousand dollars, right? So it's just a, to Aaron's point, understand what your management fee, your flat fee, your financial planning fee entails mm -hmm. before you sign the dotted line. Yeah, what does it actually get you? And then next on the contract side, you will likely sign some kind of investment management agreement, but what does the relationship commitment look like if you are investing assets with the advisor? What is the liquidity terms? Can you leave at any time? So we see a lot of people get caught in some contract terms that they maybe did not read about or the advisor did not disclose up front. Yeah, and 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 we see this we see this we see this manifest itself in a in a number of ways. There's companies out there that charge a closing fee. So each account that, that is transferred, they charge like a hundred bucks to close the account, which is egregious. Some firms have proprietary investment holdings that don't transfer over and then they sell them, they charge you a commission, then they charge you a closing fee once the funds are raised. I mean, it's just a mess. I've I've seen a company name themselves as trustee to an IRA, which makes no sense, making the business extremely sticky. It's it, so, so we're dealing with this now where we're trying to transfer the assets over to peer portfolios, but this company has basically made it impossible to transfer. So the long end of it is some financial institutions will make it extremely hard for you to fire them. That should not be the case. So once you decide you want to work with someone, understand what the unwinding process looks like. Mm -hmm. It should be frictionless. How about on the investment side? What kind of questions should someone be asking about investments? Because a lot of people don't know what they don't know. So what would help give them better insight? This might surprise some people, but the number one question I would ask is, do you manage the money yourself or do you outsource it? Okay. Many people wrongly assume that your advisor is a professional investor. That's, that's not the case. Many people assume your advisor is investing the money. Right? You're paying them a 1% fee. You assume they're doing the investing themselves. That's often not the case. Okay. So understand who is pulling the buy sell decisions. Who is managing the assets? What is their framework for managing risk? How do they make buy sell decisions? If they, if an advisor does outsource the investment management, that's not, not necessarily a bad thing, but you want to understand who is managing the money, what it costs what their investment approach is, all of these things. Because I've, I've met certain prospects, I've met certain advisors that have no clue how their money is invested, right? Like if you're not managing the money, it's likely you don't have an intimate, an intimate understanding of risk exposures, of tax sensitivities, of the framework for making decisions. So don't assume your advisor is investing the money. Understand who's actually pulling the trigger. Yeah. Another few questions to just rattle off is, you had just said, how do you make de investment decisions or portfolio changes? How do you manage risk? We hear a lot of advisors give it the advice of just stay the course. You want to talk about that a little bit? It's a hot topic. Yeah. So I, I just talked to a guy today who was frustrated with his advisor because all his advisor could tell him was stay the course. And I find that to be fine advice if you're 25 or 35 or 45 years old. For someone that is new, that is newly retired, that potentially is taking more risk than they should. Or, or their mindset has, has changed from building wealth to keeping wealth, staying the course is actually awful advice, right? But that's the default 
response for many advisors, especially advisors at these big firms, because they're managing thousands of clients. The path of least resistance is doing nothing. So you just tell people to stay the course. And and again, that that's not the worst advice for, for a lot of people, but for someone that's living off their portfolio that can't afford a 25 to 35% drawdown in their asset base, that's that's not ideal. So I'm not saying that someone should make knee-jerk emotional emotional sell decisions when the stuff hits the fan. I'm saying you should have a framework for building portfolios that reflect the way that you feel about risk. You should have a framework for dialing risk up or dialing risk down. It shouldn't be a human call, a judgment call, an emotional call. So understanding the framework, understanding how buy-sell decisions get made, understanding your risk exposures, understanding your potential range of outcomes for the portfolio that, that you have, that, that is what a professional investor would do, okay? If you're talking to your advisor and, and nothing lines up with that, I mean, that that's just a, a baseline portfolio management 101. That's not, that's not making tactical calls. That's not to say you can't have a different style or that's not to say, you know, you can't have a different style or think about mar- think about markets a different way. That's just the baseline. Yeah, I think you wrote it in a blog post a while back, but it was something along the lines of staying the course is the worst advice if you're on the wrong path. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's like going the wrong direction and you're lost and you don't have a clue how to get out and you just keep going, you keep digging the hole deeper. So if your advisor's just telling you to stay the course and you you have a gut feeling that the course is not for you, there, there's other advisors that actually have a framework for making decisions and taking risk off the table and stripping emotion out of the investment process and building a portfolio that reflects the way that you feel about risk, right? Like you don't have to eat the stay the course sandwich. You don't have to have that shoved down your throat because no, that's the path of least resistance for your advisor. That's easy for them to say because they have to do nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think we've harped on that enough. A couple last questions to ask the advisor that you are interviewing. We talked about this a little bit, but ask if they have any disclosures for co- potential conflicts of interest that would be typically baked into the ADV, but always good to just ask that helps. If they're able to answer that question confidently with a yes or no. That means that they're in tune with what, what their program is, what they've got going on. And then on the financial planning side, how do you optimize my plan and portfolio for taxes? That's another big one that people, I don't think, often touch on up front. Right. And the last one, and I'm not saying that your advisor needs to be credentialed or have 30 years of experience, but ask them about the designations that they do have and just try to understand their journey or understand what it took to achieve that. And if they don't have any fancy letters after their name, ask them why they've decided not to pursue, you know, a CFA or a CFP. So Erin's studying for her CFP. I earned the right to use my CFA back in 2012. And I'm not saying that those are the only two, but I can tell you that I understand the, the, sweat and commitment and the discipline that went into that. And I think it shows an appreciation for the craft. Mm-hmm. It shows that you're open-minded. It shows that you have a growth mindset. So, so when I see another advisor that has a CFA or a CFP, I'm, I'm going to probably, and this is just me personally, I'm, I'm going to take them more serious than I would someone with another designation or none at all. I think asking the question for someone who doesn't have any credentials at all, or maybe the credentials that you are looking for is a great question because I've personally asked that question 
to someone one time, and it was a very telling experience. It's probably more of what they don't say tells you more than what they do say. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, and 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 all of these questions, it's best if you just ask them and shut up. Like, watch their body language because that mm -hmm. sometimes tells. So, what I think you're trying to say, Aaron, is sometimes the body language can mm -hmm. give off more cues than 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 the verbal language. So, ask these questions and shut up. Yeah. I think that those are three great filters to run through when you are in the process of interviewing an advisor. So we've got a lot of information in the show notes below. So make sure to check those out. And if you have questions, always email us at insight at We'll see you in our next episode.